Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land. Welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are super excited to bring you another great episode of Juanced. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the show, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page. Check it out when we record or watch all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juance Podcast, as well as our website, www.juance.com. And of course, make sure you are following us on Instagram. We are at Juanced on Twitter, at Juanced Podcast for all the updates, announcements, Benny's cool graphic work. As always, make sure you subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we'd love it, or at least like it. If you left us a five-star review, we would tolerate a four-star review, but but we'd appreciate a five-star. you tolerate a four-star review. i tolerate it. We heard it makes a difference. <laughs> well, listen, uh, officially speaking here, we haven't met in a couple of weeks because of the holidays and because of uh, a couple of other things that are consistent with the times that we're living through. But uh, <laughs> Shana Tova. Shana Tova to you, Benny. Shana Tova to you, Tomer. Yeah, Shana Tova to you both. Thank you. This is uh, our first episode of the new Jewish year. Tashpab. 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 I never got into the Hebrew way of saying yeah. years. I, they never made sense to me. Maybe because I didn't grow up here. I don't Maybe know. Maybe because they don't make sense. Maybe because they don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's like 1999, 2000, 2001. <laughs> With Hebrew, you have to have an entire degree just to be able to tell what time it is of the year. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's our first episode. Tomorrow is uh, the the holy and awesome day of uh, Yom Kippur. Mm. Um, are you are you a shul goer, Tomer? I'm sort of. I mean, my family goes to Tzion, uh, which is a sort of. Um, we know Tzion. Rabat Tamar. Tamar Elad Eppelbaum. Yeah, we, we had her on the show. Oh, uh, fantastic! A couple months ago. Yeah, yeah. I love her. I think she was episode fifty-one. Tashpab. Tashpab. So, so we're with her community. It, it sounds like a fascinating community. It is. It's and it's warm and it's alive and uh, the mm. services, yeah, are are really are, are really you know they do something for you. Mm. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. What what do you uh, usually do on Yom Kippur, Benny? On uh, Yom Kippur, since having children, we're basically in the house. Um, it, we don't really go anywhere or do anything. But uh, if if I was so inclined, I could walk out in. I live in Gadara. And there are thousands and thousands of kids riding bikes in their streets and people walking around with their families. And it's kind of a, a very, let's call it a family-friendly atmosphere. It's nice. Uh, it is nice. I, it was nice the first couple of years that we did it. I think now we've kind of just gotten over 
uh, <laughs> that it's hot outside and and you're walking around outside and everybody's out there and the kids commingle and then it you know becomes a uh, a super spreader event. Ah, no, it's, outside. Outside. it's outside. It's, it's fine. outside. It's <laughs> outside. Um, but but that's that's kind of where we are. And then and of course tomorrow I'll make bagels at home, which are my Dan knows I have these famous bagels. Makes that I good make. bagels. I really do. Uh, if I must be modest about bagels, yeah, you're uh, welcome no, to bring so some over. This is the pre-fast meal, right? This is no, this is the post-fast. So I make oh, okay. the bagels tomorrow morning, okay. and then they're there for uh, when we okay. break the fast. Yeah. Um, I also have to say, not related to the awesome day of Yom Kippur, but uh, the you know the fact that we're I said to, to our guest before setting up the board. This is the first time that I've set up the board to have an in-person podcast with you and a guest. I think since before the summer started. It's true. You you went abroad um, for a good month at least yeah then i went abroad for about two weeks and then i was in isolation then my kids were in isolation and then uh which is why we also took a short break from having live episodes so it's it's really nice to be in person it makes such a difference this is what i was trying yeah. to tell you tell me it makes such a big difference to be able to look at a facial expression body definitely language, you know, definitely um to you know to not have that extra fraction of a second on zoom cutting you off um as mm -hmm. much as i appreciate that we can talk to people all over the world via zoom um speaking of people all over the world before we go any further uh i would <laughs> i would just like to N nice say segue, nice yeah, segue. a little segue here check it out everybody juanced <laughs> of course is a listener supported podcast we we rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourselves to make sure that we keep the show going to the best of our abilities and uh, we do appreciate all the support that we've received so far from so many so many people indeed, around the world. Indeed. And we do have listeners, of course, around the world. I think we're up to something like what? like We're, we're at to around uh, 135 countries last I checked. That's quite insane. It is. Uh, of course, there are probably Chinese listeners listening on a VPN. We, we hope. know it. We hope. Uh, Shoot us a message if you are a Chinese listener. And we just can't see you on our statistics. Absolutely. Uh, so if you want to reach out and support the show, you can make a one-time contribution on PayPal. You can, of course, do what we would prefer and make an ongoing contribution Even through, better. through our Patreon account. All the information you would need to find out how to donate to us and to keep this party going is on our website. Again, that's www.juance.com. We really appreciate it, and it totally makes a difference. It's true, and you can also reach out and uh, bring us in to do a Juanced live event for you or your community or organization. We've done a number of those over the last year. They've been wonderful. We've got a great speaker series with the Orange County Community Scholars Program um, where we're doing an ongoing series where we bring them fascinating Israeli guests We've done a couple of Meet the Emiratis and other geopolitical episodes. So, again, the information for that is on our website. Absolutely. www.juance.com. Dan, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest this week? I'd love to. So, this is a guest uh, who we've met before, but just in passing, you know, just a shalom, shalom type uh, meeting here, here where we're sitting actually in the JPPI, my place of residence. We have with us Dr. Tomer Persico, uh, someone I've been following online for a long time. Um, Thank you. I find you a fascinating um, and deeply thoughtful and original thinker on, Thank you. on the Jewish scene, on the Israeli scene. Dr. Tomer Persico is a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. For the last three years, he served as the court visiting assistant professor at the Helen Diller Institute for Jewish Law and Israel Studies at UC Berkeley. Did you have to have that on a name tag everywhere you went? Uh, and a senior research scholar at the UC Berkeley Center for Middle Eastern Studies, uh, Dr. Persico's fields of study are contemporary spirituality, Jewish modern identity, Jewish renewal, and forms of secularization and religiosity in Israel, all uh, topics I'm also fascinated with. Maybe that's why I like reading 
your work. His first book, The Jewish Meditative Tradition, came out in Hebrew, uh, was published in what year? 2016. 2016. And your new book in... Tel Aviv University Press. Tel Aviv University Press. Thank you. And your newest book, In God's Image, The Making of the Modern West, or in Hebrew, what is the title? Adam B'Tselem Elohim. Oh, he's even got the, the radio voice too. Awesome. That, that's a great title and that's a big part of what yeah. we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, published in 2021 by Yediot Books, which is one yep. of Israel's uh, biggest publishers. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'll have the information for that on our website, on our show notes. Great, link thank you. If people uh, want to order this book. Tomer, how are you? Thank you, good. I mean, actually, I'm surprised how good because this morning I got my third vaccine shot in Israel. <laughs> Mazel tov. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And so, and so I was actually afraid that I will be down for the count. Listen, the podcast isn't over yet. Yeah. We could see where this goes. It might, it might become entertaining in more ways than one <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. a, as we get going. Uh, I think you should be okay. I was okay. Uh, e- even when I wasn't okay the next day, I was, I was still okay. okay uh, it was probably more psychosomatic than it was real, uh, yeah. real symptoms. Uh, I was, like I told you, I, I had, um, I was fine, a little soreness of the arm, and then middle of the night, I got the chills. I took a couple Advil. I woke up, and I was... Good as new. No, <laughs> good, good enough. <laughs> good enough. Uh, I slept, had a good night's sleep, and I was... I was very happy. So, Great. God willing, you'll feel fine and everything will be okay. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. So, you just, uh, you got back. You were three years. Yeah, got back two months ago only. Um, we're, you know, still being accustomed to Israeli life. Where were you? What? Where were you? So, in Berkeley. Uh, in we, California. We lived in Berkeley, California. I, I was a, a visiting assistant professor at the university. I was also, by the way, a scholar in residence for the Hartman Institute. Mm. which I am a, a research fellow here in Israel, but there, you know, they have a, it's a, sort of the, the U.S. branch yeah, of the Hartman yeah. Institute, so I belong to them. So uh, Yudha Kurtzer and... Exactly, Yudha Kurtzer is the president there, and uh, here it's Daniel Hartman. Right. Tell Yudha I'd like to get him on the show. I've reached oh, out. You he should. didn't respond. I'd you like to should. get him on the show. You definitely should. I, fi- I find him also to be fascinating. Interesting and wise man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm friendly with uh, uh, David Svi Kalman over there. Oh yeah, okay. His his father used to be uh, a member of my my synagogue, so oh. uh, I get to talk to him every time he he came to visit. <laughs> so how how did you was it your first uh, significant experience living in the United States? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, as a child, I lived in Canada. Mm-hmm. We were in two years in Toronto, and that's why my English is a bit better than the average Israeli. Sure. Uh, but I never lived in the States, and indeed, until a few years ago, I have never actually been in the States. Like, really? It, like more than passing through an airport or something. Yeah. Wow. yeah. But you went like hardcore. You moved to Berkeley. Yes. So I, I <laughs> started. Like, like that. I don't even know if Berkeley considers itself part of America anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people Re- People's Republic of Berkeley. Exactly. As we, right? Literally and figuratively. As we, yeah, as we call it. Uh, but, but it was a great experience. The whole San Francisco Bay is simply so beautiful. And so yeah, yeah, nice, really and so comfortable, and the weather is so good. And really, I, I just have good things to say. Dan, yeah, have you ever been to the Bay Area? I've actually never been to California. Whoa! Oh it's my true. God! Never been to the West Coast, you and uh, I'm planning uh, planning on a work trip to L.A., San Francisco, and and possibly Silicon Valley in uh, November later this year. Okay, good. Yeah. 
Um, what did anything surprise you from your interactions with American society, with uh, the kind of people in Berkeley, in the Jewish community? Um, I can't say that something surprised me. I was, you know, I, 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 I assumed what I met uh, would be there, which is very diverse, very colorful, very creative Judaism, which has very little actually knowledge about life in Israel, about our political system and, and what's, how we function, how Israel functions. And, and, but also, you know, again, communities which are um, really at the forefront of Jewish creativity, I would say. Yeah. It's the uh, sort of research and, how do you call it, the research R&D, and yeah. R&D, yeah. yeah. Research and development, like, uh, um. department of, of Judaism. I mean, at any given Friday, at least pre-COVID, you could have chosen between 20 different Jewish non-denominational communities in the Bay Area and uh, which which would, I would say, create or experiment in Judaism that is aligned with ecology or spirituality of different kinds of or uh, or, or, or or LGBT culture, mm. anything like that. And 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 all, and you know, and usually would you would be uh, not only welcomed and, and feeling at home, but really impressed with the again the creativity and the the just the the, the, the bubbling of, of Jewishness or different kinds that is going on there. Yeah. Can you can you for a second just break it down for our listeners that might not be familiar? What do you mean by like Jewish creativity going on out there? What, what, so how so does it come, how has it come to fruition in, in examples? So again, so so the the Bay Area in general is not a place where there's a lot of presence of what of of the non-orthodox movements reform and conservative right uh, they never s- had a, a a large footprint there uh, and this and and f- from one side it's 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 uh, you know it's a disadvantage for for pluralistic judaism but on another hand it's it's an advantage because there are there, there's a lot more space for experimentation. It was and des- it described to me, the entire area was once described to me as unchurched. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good uh, yeah. way to describe that I part guess. of the country. And so again, like I, I, we, we went with the kids a few times to Kabbalat Shabbat, to, to Friday service in what is called Urban Adama, a community yeah. there that is devoted to you know, combining Judaism and ecology or eco- ecological consciousness. Uh, and, and so they have their Friday services, uh, which are interesting and, and emotionally uplifting and everything like that. We went to the kitchen, which uh, uh, were led by the uh, rabbi Noah Kushner. Also, so it's different. So it's, so it's, more, it's sort of a more... Em- I would say maybe community-centered and spiritual-centered community and and service, which is you know again to hear her wise words and and to to see this community of Jews, mostly young to middle-aged, uh, coming to hear her words. Again, it's it's she's a brilliant uh, yeah. writer and speaker. Yeah. Um, I, I, Indeed, I was telling Tomer uh, pre-taping. Um, this is part of what I've been writing about the past couple of years. And Noah Kushner in the Kitchen is one of the communities I describe that um, is is 
doing fascinating work, and, and I actually follow her on Facebook and read her her weekly sermons. You know that that yeah. she gives. What yeah. kind of what kind of an impact is the Jewish experience or the Jewish freedom of expression in the Bay Area in California having on the wider Jewish? world uh, in the United States. Okay, so that's a good question, by the way, which I think you can answer even better than me. I mean, it's always a question of whether this is only the the very avant-garde elite that has actually no connection with the large masses of Jews, or really the the forefront, which of, or, you know, the sign signing of things to come. You know, people who are doing things now that in a generation will be commonplace and ubiquitous. And, and and I mean, I I would certainly say that that some things that are going on there now will will be a more widespread in the future, including here in Israel. Now that's the question yeah, here that's in Israel. The question. I I mean, that my that's my thesis that I'm trying to. We've been talking about this for the last year of taping the show. I'm trying to finish this book. We're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at the editing part. It's just so tedious. If you're an editor that wants to help Dan. No, we have one here, and, and he's great. It's just, um, you can sympathize, I'm sure. But th- that that's my take, is, is I think... I think um, it will get here? No, no, no. I think it'll, it, it will influence the wider American Jewish community because rabbinical students and people who are kind of more willing to be active leaders, lay leaders or professional in Jewish communities, go to kitchen go to these different kinds of experimental places and then they bring with them back to their kind of more traditional reform synagogues and they bring back that that's my take at least i mean is it yeah. is it getting into the uh, i don't know how to say what the what the jewish equivalent would be but is, is it getting into the rabbinical academy is it getting into the the to what's it called huc or or uh what the conservative equivalent is. I'm conservative has, J- has JTS. JTS, and, and, thank and you. And it has uh, American Jewish University and uh, or Ziegler now, I guess it's called. I don't know. Did you see any kind of influence on, on, on that level? Oh, well, I, 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 I didn't visit any right. um, rabbinical schools. But but I want to address what you said about coming here, about, about these influences here. And, he, and, and I think that's that would be problematic or, or that would be hard in, in two senses. Not that it won't happen at all, but for these sort of experimental communities or avant-garde Judaism uh, to, to get here, they need to, f- you know, I mean, they, 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 they need to first um, accommodate for the very large understanding of Judaism here and Jewish identity here as national, right? Right. Jews here, first of all, think of their Judaism as a nationality, or not first of all, but many of them, and, and, and for some it's the only Jewish oh. identity they have. They don't have a religious or even cultural Jewish identity. It's just being part of the state of Israel. Right. right. And second of all, don't forget that here we do have an orthodox monopoly. We have the chief rabbinate, which is state-sponsored and state-protected you know, from, from competition. They don't sponsor anything else. Uh, the rabbinate has, has the, uh, only the rabbinate has permission to wed people, to, to marry people, to, to convert people to Judaism, etc. <laughs> no. Maybe that's changing now. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and to, to grant kosher certificates, yeah. and that's also maybe changing. Sure. But, but for, but, and I see that as a great obstacle f- for Jewish creativity in Israel. People 
understand Judaism as, as you know, the, 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 understand legitimate Judaism as rabbinical Orthodox Judaism because the, the state has its stamp on it. And even in, in and even if not that, it's simply a matter of funds and and you know legitimate legitimacy in the public sphere. If you try to to uh, you know assert yourself as a different community, you will get some pushback. Sure. And and plus, you need money. So so it's but uh, but on the other hand, you know, so many other counter. I, wanna, I I dare count call it counterculture, but there's been so many other cultural influences that have come out of. Let's say the United States in general, but out of out of California. Oh, no, no, so, in, so definitely in, in, in particular that have had you know vast influence on 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 the cultural context in, in which we live, on on music, on on food, on you know it's it it could you know p- p- penetrate in some sort of an informal way, particularly among a no, younger definite. generation. I, of people. I, I definitely think there will be penetration. The, the, what, what we're talking about is the you know the magnitude of the influence. That, that's right. all. I mean, I, I don't expect that at any given Friday night here, even in 20 years, I will have 20 different experimental, spiritual, avant-garde Jewish minions to go and pray at. I don't think that will happen. Yeah, it, it seems, um, although I got to say, I am noticing um, a, a a different kind of Jewish experimentation here. And I don't live in Jerusalem. You live in Jerusalem, correct? Yeah, that's right. And so maybe you see it more on a day-to-day basis. I mostly hear about it. Um, that People who maybe grew up in Orthodox settings, and so they have familiarity with tradition, with text, mm-hmm. um, but are willing to experiment, willing to push the boundaries, willing to, um, to take more provocative stances... Um, where in the U.S., I think you know a, a lot of that is coming from people who grew up with richer reform or conservative backgrounds, especially conservative, where they have deeper mm-hmm. understanding of Jewish text. Here, those people who have deep understandings of Jewish text and tradition, but aren't necessarily wedded to to a strict uh, Orthodox interpretation, seem to be coming from the Orthodox world, what we'd call datlashim, right? Right. And then they're, yeah. you know, but they're, they're not just throwing off the kippah entirely. Right. They're, they're willing to experiment. They're willing to, you know, I was talking with a colleague today um, about um, a, a new trend of Sephardic and Mizrahi egalitarian groups in Minyanim. Really? Um, and our, um, our friend in the, in the U.S. who we grew up with um, sent me a link that he participated in a pluralistic, egalitarian, inclusive Sephardic um, community called Kenisa, um, and he he joined their online Where? services. Yeah. It's in the U.S. That's ah, in the U.S. No, no, but but the the one talked about in Jerusalem. Okay. There is a new uh, maybe in Baca or in Talpiot. Maybe there's a new Sephardic Look, I, egalitarian I, I, I scene happening. I mean, let's let's. I mean, I, I wrote about yeah. <laughs> the the Jewish what what we call here the Jewish Renaissance, meaning the reengagement of Masorti and and certainly Chiloni, secular Jews with their tradition. This is certainly a a very significant phenomenon. It has happened over the last even thirty years, I would say, maybe even since since the nineties. Uh, no, certainly since the nineties, maybe the end of the eighties. Uh, so that's that's happening, and we've got pluralistic yeshivas, and we've got uh, you know uh, um, Kabbalah Shabbat in, in Tel Aviv's port, uh, like uh, 
and and with musical instruments and whatnot. So this is all happening. Again, I the question we always ask is what, what like what percentage of the population actually is engaged with it? Is it an elitist uh, project or does it seep? Well, is it is it accessible? Yeah, is is it more influential? Or is it influential on more wider circles? This is always a question. I'm not, but I'm not in any way, de- and like, um, uh, I, I don't want to, to deny that this is happening. This is certainly, sure, sure. this is certainly a phenomenon. And, and that the Tlashim, um, f- you know, phenomenon is a part of it. Can you explain the Tlash? The Tlash is a person who grew up Orthodox in Israel, usually a knitted skull cap, like, like national religious, the religious national, uh, Zionists. And and took off his kippah and does not observe uh, the halacha. The tila shavar, yeah. yeah. And and what is interesting is just as you said, then that while I would say thirty years ago, certainly and and backwards, people like that would turn totally secular and don't want anything to do with the tradition. Right. After you know taking off the kippah, now they will want actually. They usually turn into masorti Jews, right? Traditional, right? Traditional, doing Kabbalah Shabbat, uh, celebrating the holidays, even wanting their children to have the richness of tradition that they have, and that's always the question: How do you, how do you raise the Tlash children? Because you have been raised Orthodox, you came out of it, but you still hold the knowledge and the richness. But of course, passing that on—that's that's really. I love how you phrase that. How do you raise a Tlash child? Yeah. And just for those who don't understand Hebrew, how? ironic maybe that yeah. statement is how do you raise a formerly religious child which means well it's it's a, it's a definition know. of the term you know let's let's sure. first define religious because we we were having this conversation the other day observant observant religious religi- right. the, the english language doesn't have uh, maybe it doesn't capture the nuance of this so so for example to a totally secular person we're still talking about somebody who is a in 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 a certain level a religiously observant person he's not as observant as he once was but he has not right completely gone atheist for example he's not given it up completely and started just being you know an atheist person who is or, no or a secular or, person or, totally sec- right. or a secular person yes but but he's not he's not he doesn't see himself as oblig- obligated that's, to that's the keyword yeah, right to, obligation to either the tradition or a rabbinical authority he decides they decide for them for themselves. Yes, right. What exactly? But, but and, and that, that, now the change is the, the difference is they don't throw it all away. They want to. But I, I I might argue that in the context of Israel, this makes perfect sense because you have a you know a a, a for lack of a better way of putting it, a state monopoly on religious expression to a certain extent, or the, or the, or the Rabbanut would want that, or there's a you know ordained or accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for, for the majority of people, whereas if that person were living in the United States, that would just be what many many Jews might consider themselves. I'm I, I'm I, I'm buying into as much as I feel like adhering to in whatever community I'm deciding to opt into, or yeah. I'm adhering to the rules that make sense to me. And there's not going to be an outside pressure from the totality of society near me in my town or in my right. or my place and of it's business. It's not so much I, pressure. I would say w- what is special in Israel is that you have the atmosphere. You are like swimming inside Jewish waters all the time. Mm. 
like let's say Yom Kippur, which which is coming up. Like it, it, you can't miss Yom Kippur in Israel. You can't not notice that it is Yom Kippur. The whole public sphere is Yom Kippur, and there's no right, cars right, in the right. streets, etc. So that actually makes it much easier to be a part of the tradition in With, Israel, right? Right. Without having to actively yeah, decide to have to be a part do of. anything. And by the way, what I what I uh, uh, um, uh, met in the United States is former Israelis now living in Silicon Valley or the the Bay Area, which suddenly have no connection to Judaism because their Judaism, which they appreciated and liked, was totally dependent on the state-sponsored, as it were, atmosphere holidays, uh, education in public schools, etc. And once they don't have that, that's it. They don't have anything. Right, and, and they find it bizarre to connect to like American Reform Judaism. Yeah, th- th- that's totally foreign to them. But they really want that, the, that sort of Israeli secular Jewishness that they had. And of course, they can't replicate it in the United States. And what's worse for, for them, at least for many of them, is that they can't give it to their kids. Their kids mm. are growing up they would like their kids to grow up Israelis, but they're growing up Americans, of course, right? And and for them, it's you know, it's it's a moment of of an identity crisis. Interesting, yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about this on the show many times, um, uh, and I'll borrow a term from my colleague here, Shmuel Rosner, who calls it here in Israel. You can be a lazy Jew, yeah, and you can't yeah. do that yeah. in the diaspora unless you live yeah. in a major major community. You have yeah. to you have to be intentional about it, especially these Definitely. days. Definitely. What and this is what some Israelis don't understand about conservative and reform Jews in the states. They would they think that well, Orthodox are obviously very much you know invested in their Judaism, but the reform and conservative are just lax or whatever. But quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Reforming conservative Jews in the United States spend and invest a lot of time and sure. money, especially today, in their Judaism, and if they don't. They just are not apart, right? Right. A- and Israelis don't understand how much actually you have to put in yeah. mm-hmm. to be a Jew and for your children to be Jews in, in the States. In previous generations, and I've, I've written about this when I was trying to explain the differences to, to about Israeli Jews in America, I said, you know, in previous generations, when assimilation was not as common, you, you did have that. Being a Reformed Jew or a conservative Jew was the fallback at one point in American Jewish history, the 50s, the 60s, maybe the 70s. Was it? But you always had to, you know, even pay money just it, to but, be but a it part was of just, a... But it was just a, assumed that you had to, okay, you have a shul membership, you, you're a member, you show up once a year. That's just who you are. Today, that's no longer the case. Today, like you said, and, and I think that's a great distinction you have to make that active choice mm-hmm. to be a reformed Jew or to be a conservative Jew or to be a non-denominational active Jew, which mm-hmm. is a new thing mm-hmm. that's um, that's growing. And I think that's one of the big changes that's happened in the in the American Jewish community. Um, how did you? Um, I'd love to get into into your into your new book. I mean, oh, yeah. th- I've I've been just the cover. <laughs> well, I think maybe maybe a segue to get into that <laughs> yeah, might I, might I, be. Go ahead. We're talking a lot about, about. I didn't bring a copy for some reason. We'll we'll uh, we'll pull up. Yeah. A, we're we're, to, we're talking we're talking here a lot about the nuances of different uh, denominations of Judaism, whether here in, in in the state of Israel or in the United States, and the adherence to it, and and, and how they sort of break down and the particular identities of each. But but there's religion and then there's spirituality, yeah. and and I think that it needs to be expressed that there is there's overlap, of course, and religion includes spirituality, but spirituality is a is a broader sort of 
you can define it for me, but but mm. I, I would see it more as like a blanket that that is unique to maybe all of humanity in certain you know in in, in many ways. You know, it's this quest for you know what what are we? Where are we? What is reality? What yeah. is what is the nature of our existence? And uh, where do we go after we die? And these sorts of questions. Or or a quest to connect to the the beyond, right? right? To, to, to powers that are beyond. Do us. you? How how do how how can we define spirituality, and and okay. how can we define it in the Jewish context? So this, by the way, is my former book, my first oh, book. Oh, so, so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, too. and what's interesting here is that while spirituality was always a part of religion, though, by the way, in the West at least, never you know the center or the most important. Like the Pope isn't the most spiritual person in Christianity. The the biggest halachic or a halachic authority isn't the most spiritual person in in the Jewish tradition at any given time, but uh, but it was always a part. And what is interesting now, or in, in modernity, is that these two entities split apart, and people are not only do people believe, think, act as if spirituality can be totally divorced from um, um, uh, institutional religion. But some, but many people today think that institutional religion is an obstacle for true spirituality. Notice this, right? People yeah, will I've say, s- I've seen I don't want, you know, institutional, I don't want the rabbinate, I don't want the church, I want to be spiritual, I want to, you know, I don't, I want to reject all this, uh, you know, automatic, mechanical, dry, unauthentic, etc. all these superlatives, um, uh, uh, you know, institution in order to really pursue the inner truth, etc. My special path, personal, etc. So, so what's different today is is not only the the ubiquitousness of of spiritual seekers. Again, notice it's it's at least in the West, never there were so many people going on their own personal spiritual quest. You know, there was always there were always the, you know, the the the, the one-off monk or nun or the, the 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 Jewish hermit or whatever that you know they had their own thing, but never in such numbers and never in such percentages. So first of all, this ubiquitousness of of spiritual seeking and the the presumption that actually we need to separate from institutional religion in order to truly search for our personal, unique, authentic connection with the divine. Where, where, does, where and when does this train of thought, this idea come from? So we're talking really about contemporary spirituality or sometimes as it is called New Age spirituality, and we can see it developing in the 19th century, uh, first of all in communities, in 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 um, in secret societies, like the or 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 not so secret societies, but but you know communities. So we can have any number of communities in the United States, by the way. Uh, and I would maybe um, mention, I would say the forerunner or the the biggest impact. It would be that they had it would be at the transcendentalist Emerson Thoreau Whitman later these sort of thinkers who said cut away from your institutional denominations and you know do your right. own thing go out and, and go out literally separate from society go yeah. out to the woods Walden or, Pond or, or, yeah this is Walden and, and Emerson would say you know 
cast off secondhand religion, you know, received tradition, and you have to chart out your own path, etc. Yeah. So this is the 30s of the 19th century. And then you have all sorts of societies like the Theosophic, Theosophical Society or other that were once very big, but today are completely forgotten. And you got the next stage where it becomes a popular you know, mass movement in the 60s with the hippies and flower children and, and, and all, and, and, you know, influxes influx of, of uh, Eastern religions. Eastern religion. Tran- Transcendental med- meditation. Meditation, ISKCON, which is uh, called Hare Krishna, uh, uh, you know, a lot I of I ran time. into them at the airport. Okay. <laughs> so, so that comes in in the 60s and, you know, has a tremendous influence in the in the in the American public and 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 in Israel, it would come only in the nineties as a mass movement, right? As a lot of individuals engaging in these activities, spiritual quests, etc. It you have a few gurus and spiritual teachers even in the fifties and sixties in Israel, mm-hmm. but it becomes. Very popular only in the 90s. Do you think it's a socioeconomic thing that y- that only when your society gets to a certain place of economic development do do you get bored and then start looking for you know the, these kind of next level things we'll call it? So it has, I would say, it has an economic um, dimension. Where obviously in the 50s Israel was v- a very poor society, sure. and you know the amount of energy you can devote to you know, experimental re- religiousness is is nil but i would certainly say it also have has to do with a certain ethos in your society and we need to remember that israel until the 70s and you know late 70s even was a very collectivistic society right israel was founded as a socialist state and not only as a you know economic theory but as a social understanding a social ethos israel was very um, I'm collectivistic, and and people were were expected to give up their own personal aspirations for the collective, right? As they do their individual money <laughs> and uh, funds. So as we so, still do with our taxes. <laughs> so only when that crumbled as an ethos, as a, as the, the the central framework for the Israeli society, and that was with the fall of Mapai, with the fall of the labor movement, with the coming into power of the right for the first time in 77 in Israel. Only when that happened did the, the public sphere open up for a, you know, legitimate, uh, the public sphere would legitimatize these sort of personal quests, etc. And, and, that, and that hit only in the 90s. What are people searching for? Like what, why, Dan, you mentioned economics before, but I think going even deeper than economics, I mean, I think that people... If, if we were talking about before, about how we're seeing this more and more in our era today, specifically, in, in let's say in this decade, I think that you could make a clear tie into people's feelings of loneliness or living in, in, in you know, the social media silo that they're in and not having an expression of a broader community and they're looking for what and, and reasons. But, you know, going back to those days, what would, what would you know, motivate somebody to go out? You know, what, the 90s? Maybe the 90s in this country, I mean, in, in Israel. What are people looking for? I would for? say two things. <laughs> And it's funny for me to, I, I will, you'll soon see why. First, they are looking for Jewish identity and they're looking for an identity, I would say, because the fall of that socialist 
paradigm ethos was also the fall of a certain way of expressing your Judaism, your secular Judaism in Israel. Let's not forget that Mapai, that the labor movement which founded the Israeli state, also gave secular Jews in Israel an understanding, a way to formulate a Jewish identity. They were Hebrew, right? Do you remember that? Ha'ivri. Right. It, was a, it was a thing. It was the, they, the new Jew. Yeah, they, they, they were the new Jew. They were uh, physically fit and healthy, and they were national, and they were militant, and they were workers, they were proletariat, right? And they were, you know, coming together to realize the dream of the prophets of a egalitarian, just society, which uh, accommodates or helps the needy, etc., etc., etc. It was a whole thing, and that thing fell, fell apart. And so it, it, it started falling apart in the 70s, and in the 90s it is just no longer here, and people are searching for an identity, and, and sometimes it's expressed in, in just different spiritual quests, and sometimes, though, more often it would be expressed in, uh, in specific Jewish spiritual quests. So people are looking, are, are articulating a new Jewish identity by re-engaging with their Jewish tradition, but from an individualistic, new agey sort of way. And they're you know, going to Kabbalah courses or movements or neo-Hasidism or, or different types of things. So, so first I would say this, they are looking, they are trying to reformulate their Jewish identity or, or, um, or another sort of identity. But I will say another thing. You know, I hope I'm not, uh, I hope it's, it's okay to say, but people are also looking for God. Like, I'm, I'm a religious person and I, I take it that there is a God. And, and so at least a part of spirituality is an actual search for something that is missing from secular life, which is a connection with something that is divine, transcendent, absolute, however you want to put it. Did, did you grow up religious, in a religious background? No, I grew up totally secular and, and actually atheist. Mm. In Haifa, the <laughs> red Haifa, as we say in, in Israel, uh, um, just as usual. Yeah, we, say, we say we, Haifa is Chul. Chul, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like, it's it, we, we, whenever we're searching for a place to go on like a family vacation, it's like, let's go to Haifa. That's like, oh. it's, 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 the closest it's not Tel Aviv, it's not Yerushalayim, it's something else. <laughs> So I so I grew up in a totally secular family. So is family. this line of uh, academic research also kind of your own personal journey? So that's is a good question. Obviously, yes, yes. So obviously, I mean, I I first I first uh, um, my my first area of expertise was contemporary spirituality and New Age spirituality and Jewish meditation, which are all connected to my own personal quest or path. Uh, I actually. Got into it in in India. I that you know the usual post army Israeli trip to well, India. That's a part of it too, isn't it? A, a what part? That's a part of it too. So isn't so it? a part of it is experiencing all these gurus and ashrams and workshops and whatever courses. But I actually found some real essence in in a few of them, and I said, "Wow, this there's some real stuff here." What, what did you find? I'm curious. What caught me at the uh, from the beginning was vipassana meditation. I what is sometimes called mindfulness today. Mm. Um, I took a course or two 
in Vipassana in my first journey to India. And I said, what, this is amazing. It's actually teaching me a lot about myself and about the world. And, and I continued. I continued to be a pretty devout meditator mm. for the next decade. Really? What, what does that entail? Sitting about 40 minutes every day, watching the breath, watching whatever comes up, and being mindful, and being um, a bit detached, but very connected, very aware of everything that is going on at the moment. I, uh, t- do you uh, hang out with Yuval Noah Harari and uh, meditate <laughs> together? <laughs> no, no, but, but I, I appreciate his, uh, that he does it. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's I, I, I got a lot from it. I don't meditate like uh, regularly anymore, um, to my shame, but, but it's, it, it did a lot for me. I, yeah, that's, I, I heard a podcast where he talked about how it let him connect to his thoughts and write Sapiens because he was able to right. you know, yeah. really bring out, uh, connect all the dots. Um, Amazing. I, I, <laughs> it gets me thinking, you know, I, I work very hard um, and I think anybody who knows me even slightly well will say yes, but I also work very inefficiently. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I can't imagine stopping for 40 minutes a day, an hour a day, 30 minutes a day, and literally just breathing. And, well, uh, I, would, I would say to you uh, that you just have to make it your priority and not compromise it's on, true. It's on, true. On, on giving that the time. Absolutely. And you do that with other things. I do that with other things, um, uh, and it's true. And there, there are other things. There, there are a few things that I wish I, uh, and maybe in this year I'll, I'll use it as a, you know, a Jewish New Year's resolution that I yeah. say, uh, yeah. you know, for, for me it's, I mean, it's... You don't even need 40 minutes. But even, even 10 minutes sure. a day. I would say would make a difference. Yeah, my um, I want to dedicate more time to, to Talmud study. That's uh, something I've I've al- yeah. I've said to myself, and I've done it here and there, and just not in an orderly manner. But that's it, yeah. is for there, me. That's my thing that I you know I want to. Is there dedicate. a Jewish a Jewish heritage in meditation? Good question. So I wrote a book about it. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you, so so you're the person to ask. Hence, <laughs> so meditation, uh, contrary to what you may see in in different strands of Hinduism or Buddhism, meditation was never at the center of the Jewish tradition. Obviously, right? The, the center is, is is many things. Is Talmud, is Halakha, is Agada, is a covenant with the divine, but not meditation. So there's no actual uh, basic significant trunk. Uh, of Jewish meditation from which different avenues, different branches shoot out uh, of in different generations, etc. There's no such thing. There's no one Jewish meditation. What there are, what there is, is many different uh, manifestations or, or, or like showings of Jewish meditation in different generations, in different traditions. So we've got, so in the Bible you can find a bit here and there. You can, and then you have... Uh, like where? Just curious. And then go to um, chapter ten in Samuel, in the first book of Samuel, and there Samuel instructs Saul that he has just christened to be uh, anointed. Sorry, anointed. anointed. <laughs> <laughs> the timeline's a little off yeah. <laughs> on the christening. In, in, in Hebrew, it's the same word for our listeners out yeah, there. That's yeah. uh, because uh, Christ is the Messiah. So Mas- Messiah, uh, if people are aware. Yeah. Right, if people aren't aware, Messiah comes from uh, Mashiach, right? And yeah. Mashiach comes from the word limshoch to to anoint with oil, to right? Anoint, yeah. So, uh, so and, so people know the etymology. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he ha- he has anointed, he's just anointed Saul as the first king of Israel, but in secret, the people don't know yet. 
And now he gives, he gives Saul um, a mission. He says, you know, go to the hill of God, uh, and there you will see a bunch of people coming down from the hill with musical instruments, with a drum and harp and whatever. Join them, and you shall prophesy with them. Prophesy with them, and you shall become a different person. So, and Saul does it, and he joins them, and he prophesizes, and, and then oh. people ask, is Shaul a part of the prophets? Hagam Shaul Baneviim, right? That's there. And obviously there is some, obviously there is some mystical uh, experience there, and I would say some sort of meditation, a meditation that involves musical instruments and playing and music. Th- that sounds like a more... Uh, Maybe I just don't understand the terminology, like an ecstatic experience, yeah. maybe? Yeah, a collective ecstatic experience. That's so so you include, you'll include meditation as, as as something that can be a collective ecstatic musical dance no, the, type experience? The ecstasy is the, is the result of the meditative ex, uh, exercise, which okay. in that case, uh, meditation is not only sitting cross-legged and mm. breathing and, and being mindful. Meditation is many different things. It can be dancing to the beat of a drum. It can be oh, flailing okay. yourself and wounding yourself. It can be any intentional exercise meant to bring a, a, a transformation of your consciousness in what I would say is either an epistemological, a soteriological, or a therapeutic Result. So you either know something that you wanted to know, you are liberated from something, you are redeemed from something, or you are healed from something. Mm. And that's your objective, and, and so that's what you practice. But it, the practice itself can be many, many different things. So you've got music in the Book of Solomon, and we know there are equivalents of this in Greek culture at that time. There are... Um, You've got, and then you've got Safuta Merkava, Vaichalot Merkava, and Heichalot literature. This is third to seventh centuries, or maybe a bit more, in Israel, in the land of Israel. Uh, people who are experiencing and practicing a, a whole mystical tradition that is now completely lost. I mean, I, we have the texts, but it, it's nobody not, it's does not it. part of the biblical canon. Correct? It's not the biblical canon, and it's also not Kabbalah. Kabbalah that will come only in the 13th century, it's, it's something else. So this was something that a few Jews at least practiced, but it's no longer. What hap- Sorry to yeah. interrupt you. It sounds fascinating in the concept that something existed and then it's just it's gone, yeah. but we still know that it existed. What happened? Well, we don't know actually why people stopped practicing it. The, um, the Ashkenazi Hasids, Hasidut Ashkenaz, the German Jew, Jews who lived in what is today Germany, collected these texts and kept those texts. That's why we have them. But people stopped practicing what was there, and and in, in a few centuries later, Kabbalah arrived and took the four as the, you know, the most popular, official, mystical tradition of Judaism. You know, it's, um, it's mind-blowing to think, and I just noticed that this light bulb went off in your head, Benny. <laughs> um, it, it's mind-blowing to think that things that we just assume that that's how they are, which means that that's how they always were, that if you go back to different times in history, that's not how people viewed reality. Right. Um, I'm reading now Malachim uh, Gimel. Uh, you talked about, about Samuel, uh, Yochi Brandes' book Malachim Gimel. Oh. 
and something that uh, it, it's a historical fiction written about the time of King Solomon and King David and and uh, and King Shaul, uh, King Saul, and uh, just something that that she mentioned blew my mind um, that this was pre the first temple or right when the first temple was being built. Um, and we just assume today as modern Jews, and maybe you don't as a scholar, but but just as modern, you know, regular Jews, that the Judaism we know, that's Judaism. That's how it was. You know, the Bible we read is the Bible. The holidays we have are the holidays, and that's just how it was. And that's the narrative that's been been handed down. But at that time, the way she describes it, at least, and, and from having met her and talked to her, that, you know, she does a lot of research, um, a lot of a lot of, of, of uh, historical research goes into her books. At that time, every tribe had its own area, had its own holidays, had its own narratives, right? And this is something, you know, modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism certainly rejects, but, um, you know, the, the, what we know now is that is Judah, right? This version of Judaism and, and, you know, Ephraim or Benjamin or different tribes had their versions of Judaism, their temples, their holidays. Well, there's not the versions of Judaism, they're versions of a religious what what we would right yeah proto Judaism whatever you would call it and, and it's just mind blowing to think about yeah. that right yeah 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 and by the way I mean and also you have hints of that in the Bible right at the end of um, Shoftim how do you say judges judges, judges judges yeah so you have a few chapters that are always um, you know inserting the slogan by Mimahem and Melech Israel Isha Ashar in those days there was no king for Israel and everybody did as they as they see fit. As they saw fit. Yeah. Good yeah. times. And then, you, <laughs> and then you have there a whole story about the, a tribe of Dan coming through a temple, a private temple of these, this family, you know, constructs a temple, which obviously is illegal because you have the central temple in Jerusalem. Right. It's like it's heresy. So they have a central temple and they have an idol there. And the tribe of Dan is coming through and says, you know, let's take this. And they steal their idol. And they steal their priest. Their priest is there. And they take it and they go to <laughs> where Dan went to in the north. In the, in the and end. there they they found the temple in Beit El. There's another Beit El there, right? And in the north. And, and we know that there actually was a temple. This was a temple that served the kingdom of Israel when it split from the kingdom of Ju- of, of Yehuda, of Judea. Judah, right? yeah. Judea. And so, so you had the central temple in Jerusalem for Judea. And Israel... Had its own temple, and and it, uh, so does it's 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 a fa- it's a fantastic story written great, in and, and it's it's just mind blowing. I mean, to think about it, you know, like you said, like well, there was a different mystical tradition that we well, just don't know about it's, anymore. It's mind blowing in that context, right? But in the context of the of the history of the ancient Middle East or the ancient Near East or, or ancient anything, it's it's actually quite quite normal. Right. It's it's you know there's there's a power structure which separates which exists on its own. It needs to. You know, preserve a certain way of existence, and the way of existence in those days was that they had to find a way to serve the the, the higher powers, the gods that they believed in, and, and the, you know they had no other context of knowing how to do that other than to you know build a build a temple. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, to to go to Jerusalem just for you know sacrificing an animal, it's a lot of work. Um, why not have a little temple by your side, right? <laughs> Think about it. I can drive a car on a highway and I still get lazy to come to Jerusalem when I need to. You want a segue though? Here's a segue. <laughs> no. Here's a segue. So that's that's the making of the ancient Near East. How's, how, what about the making of the modern West? So thank you for that. Oh, so well uh, done. Right? How long were you practicing that in your head? I for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm trying to show 
in my new book is actually how different we think today. It's not only that we have less temples or more temples or different located temples, but we actually perceive ourselves and the society we live in in a whole different way. And what I try to show is how the, 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 the single idea of the fact that all people were created in the image of God had a significant influence on the making of the modern West, on how we came to perceive ourselves as modern individuals, subjects, as equal to all other people, of autonomous and thus free, etc. Say, say that idea again. Uh, the idea that all people were created in the image of God? The idea that all people were created in the image of God is, you're saying that's the foundation of Western thought? I'm not saying it's the only foundation, but a it's, foundation. It's, a, it's a very important foundation for many modern institutes that we hold dear, such as equality between all human beings, such as rights discourse. All human beings have different deep dimensions that are, that are worthy of protection, and indeed the state has to protect them from infringement of others of, or of the state itself, this very idea. The idea that, uh, that, um, that, that liberty is something that uh, we have when we are autonomous and that when other people don't interfere with or you know, stop us from doing what we want to do. And, and even the idea of secularization, the idea that we don't need God to construct, to f- establish a just society, to know what's right and wrong, and to, and, to, uh, uh, and, to, uh, and to construct a civilization that is prospering, right? That very idea, right, is connected to humanism, a person as the authority, the final authority of morality and of, of, of the big questions of, that we talked about before. And, and humanism comes from religious humanism, like secular humanism comes from religious humanism that came from the Renaissance. And the Renaissance has its roots, yes, also obviously on Hellenistic culture, Roman and Greek a philosophy, but also on the idea that there is in every person an image of the divine which is interpreted as, the, as reason and as the ability to choose between good and bad, as free choice, free will, right? So these, all, these, these ideas come together and produce what we now enjoy as the modern West. How do you, if I'm understanding you correctly... How do you reconcile that you basically just said um, this, uh, for lack of a better term, Judeo-Christian concept, this biblical concept of Adam B'Tselem Elohim, man Mm -hmm. created in the image of God, which we see in in Genesis, in Bereshit. This very religious concept is actually the basis of modern secularism, basically. Yeah, that's the irony here. Because the minute you make... I mean, what does the image of God mean in a very simple sense? It means that every individual is has worth, has has in Hebrew, and has has like special value, special value, and that and 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 and, and so we, the individual themselves 
are special and worthy of know, protection, uh, endearment, whatever. And, and that, first of all, I mean, in, in ancient times, that would mean you can't just kill off people. In the Middle Ages, it will mean that the church has to respect the, what is beginning to be said as rights of heretics and pagan peoples, like when the conquistadors, uh, the Spanish, come to South America. They, they can't just kill everybody as they want. No, that's at least some bishops and some church doctors' opinion. Of course, they did kill whatever they wanted. But, but, but there's this, this discourse around it that says, wait a minute, these are human beings and they, and they ha- have the image of God. They have a soul. We ne- obviously, we need to Christianize them, but you know, we can't just slaughter them. And, but and, let's do it anyways. But you know, you know <laughs> it's it's too difficult. So. Well, we like their gold. So, you know. <laughs> and uh, but if you take that same logic to its, uh, uh, at least one avenue in which it can reach its its end conclusion, you have a person which is so much invested in, so much um, worth, so much significant in and of themselves that they actually don't need God. They don't need institutional religion and they don't need a deity to tell them what's good and bad. They have their own right. And, and they their almost own have their own, own, their own sovereignty. Their own sovereignty, their own autonomy to do as they please, right? And so coming into the 19th century, we see that different thinkers are, are using the value of the person, of the individual, as a... As a dis- as a counterpoint against the authority of the church, and a, and at the end against the authority of God, and they say, well, actually, first of all, we don't need, you know, a higher being telling us what's right and wrong. We have our reason, we have our free will, we have our conscience, right? We have different sources to decipher what is good and bad. We don't need some bigger, like, and even more than that. And ex- the existence of a divine figure, of a deity, infringes on our autonomy. It, ob- it obstructs our ability to be rational and to be moral beings. Imagine that. Kant would say, Kant had still had a God, but, but, but Kant's morality, Immanuel Kant, right, says, you are only moral if you do something that is wholly reasonable and without any ex- ex- expectation of reward or punishment. Okay, right? Because if you expect a reward, that's not real morality, right. Kant would say. Now, notice how that idea um, um, cuts under the authority of God. If there is a God, obviously there is reward for good people and punishment for bad people. I mean, there is like sort of this cosmic justice, Right. If so, according to Kant, I can no longer be moral, because any good deed will be rewarded. Right, you're not you're not basing your decision on true morality. You're saying right. I will be punished either in you this life always, or the next, and so I have always to always have right. at the back of your head, if not at the front, the the expectance of being rewarded or punishment. And Kant would say well, that's not real morality. So, in order to be a fully autonomous and moral being, I have to reject the existence of God. 
the existence of God or the existence of a God that interferes in any way, shape, or form okay. with our lives? So, so first we have deism, right? Mm. We have deism, and we know, you know, we know the founding fathers of the United States were mostly deist, meaning, okay, there is some, God created the world, and he's, he's like, he's the genius watchmaker. He made everything fit together. He's like, and now it just works on its own. And it works. Yeah, he, he wound it up. And left it, and we, you know, he doesn't interfere, and, and but 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 he set things right. He 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 set things to to be, you know, to, to so so there is good and there is there is there is morality, etc. But he left everything alone, uh, and and that's why we can also we can we are conscious beings, etc. Whatever. But deism is just the the last step before atheism. It's basically God so, is. Is still, you know, a point of light somewhere in the sky, but really doesn't influence us at all. But we know, like, we, we are confident there, there is something like that, and we take comfort in it or whatever. And then, pop, that light goes out, and we're left on our own, and basically everything's still the same, because anyway, we are deciding for ourselves. How does, you know, I've always had an issue um, approaching it from a Jewish lens, a lens of Jewish tradition, how does, and I've never, I don't think I've ever gotten a good answer. The closest I've come to finding a decent answer to this is, is uh, Rabbi Sachs, Alava Shalom, mm. who, who I found answers, you know, essays of his that have tried to answer this. How do you, does Judaism, and you can go, uh, you know, any traditional, you can go new responses, uh, creative responses, mainstream responses, wherever, um, how does it reconcile? Because because one of the main things we we like to tell ourselves in Judaism is this concept of free will, and and, and being truly moral beings, right? And at the end of the day, literally tomorrow we're going. Uh, we believe we're some of us believe we're going before our Creator and our Judge, mm-hmm. um, to to be judged for our actions and intentions and thoughts of the last year. Um, so, how has Judaism tried? Or maybe not tried to reconcile this, this tension. This seems to be a massive tension. Yeah. In in uh, may, maybe the biggest tension uh, I can think of. Um, you know, one way of trying to reconcile it is is going in the way of Ishayahu Leibovitch, right? Leibovitch was a Kantian, and he he was influenced a lot by Kant. I think he was influenced also by Karl Barth. The, the brilliant uh, Protestant theologian, and he would say, okay, God doesn't interfere. God doesn't give reward or punishment. God simply gave us the Torah, and our expression of worship, of being in a relationship with God, is observing the Torah. It's not going to give us heaven. It's not going to give us hell if we don't. It has nothing to do with the world. Religion, indeed, is totally separate from everyday action. It is something else which we do as an imperative that we take upon ourselves, but it has no connection with actual practical things. This is one solution, right? And then you are like, the, when you are a servant of God, you are an, it's, you, you simply decide to be observant and that's what you do and, 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 uh, and it has no practical influence on your life. Right? I mean, except that, of course, you spend a lot of time praying and whatever, you eat kosher. <laughs> so that's one. I mean, but but uh, there's not many solutions for this. And, and you know, it, it's not coincidence that 
most Jews today are not observant Jews, right? I mean, uh, I would say they they probably have never been. Yeah, I mean, I I agree that people were not orthodox, and then again, I would say people were traditional, right? So you know, so they kept. We'll call it societal inertia. Yeah, they, no, no, they also lived in in you know tight knit communities. They were an ethnic minority wherever they lived. And that's just the way their community behaved. So they kept the Sabbath, they kept kosher in a, you know, in 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 what was considered kosher in those days. There was no mehadrin stamp on the matzah, right, or whatever. And did, did people use? My my mother-in-law likes to joke that uh, there's no way back in in the shtetls of Eastern Europe that people had two sets of dishes and all of yeah, these things. That's true. And when you went to another village, what did you have a kosher certificate on, on the restaurant that you ate in? I mean, no, you yeah, did what you could. I think it's actually very interesting. <laughs> I want to go back to something that you were you were talking about before because we, we were talking about the you know the concept of of God or the role of God or how mm-hmm. people in, in the reality of which we've existed in then and now appreciate and relate to the concept of God. And I think that only in the context of of the Western reality that we live in now could somebody even have that kind of the, the, the thought to, to analyze it in that way. I think that in the past, maybe it was just a given that this was, there's a creator. It, yeah, it exists. We don't, there's no other way of, you know, understanding the context of reality. Um, I think that, in, in, and, and maybe I'm going to get a little bit like, you know, woo woo here on, on us and, and go to a very esoteric place, but I think it's very interesting. Go that, for it. That we, well, I'll go for it in, in, in a minor way and then I'll go majorly there. I, I think that it's interesting that we, and, and we alone as species on this planet. To the, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't spoken to any cats or dogs or dolphins lately. You don't know if there uh, are dolphin, I, I don't know. dolphin Maybe. temples at the um, bottom of the ocean. We, we, we have don't know. our species across all geography and, and across all cultures. We have a concept of a higher power. We have a concept of a, of a, of a God, of a creator. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a narrative of the creation story of the, of the universe, of our role in it. Um, I think that it's an interesting concept to think about that that's unique to to humans that we find the need to explain the nature of our existence in such ways uh and and that our understanding of that is evolving as as time goes on that it's yeah. you know it's I wonder what humanity would look like at all if that wasn't even a part of it what if we were never yeah. curious curious enough to consider It's called chimpanzees no, but for real it's called chimpanzees no because no, it's not called chimpanzees. No, but but, but you're saying because because there are atheist human beings who live their lives without ever considering those questions to begin with. They say that you are you are alive because you were born, and you live your life because you're a living biological creature who has to feed itself, and one day you will die, and when you die, that's the end of your existence and period. And let's not question it further. And I and it's and it's curious to think, could we have evolved our existence without yeah. that? I don't think so. Um, um, no, first of all, I would say, I mean, y- humans are unique in many ways, not only with the idea of a divine power. I mean, we, we are self-conscious, we have moral frameworks, uh, which dolphins probably don't have, and certainly not ants or whatever. But what I try actually to show in my book is that it was near impossible not to believe in a higher power, in God, in antiquity, not that there weren't atheists, there were, there were a Karvaka, a Chavaka a, a group in India, the group Indian philosophers which were atheists, and we have Epicurus, um, Epicurus, um, 
in, in, in Greek, in Greece, right? But even then, it's not that these people didn't believe in gods or didn't believe in some sort of overarching karma, destiny framework. But, but, but they, they thought that, that gods are irrelevant. But it was, again, it was near impossible because the way we perceived the world was different. It was, uh, uh, we were, as the philosopher Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher says, uh, calls it, we were porous selves. We were not, we were not um, buffered selves. Yeah, I'm, I forgot the word for, for a minute. What, what does that mean? That means we did not have what we today take as granted the binary division between subjective and objective reality. We have our thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, etc. And we have objective world, which is the table and you guys, which are facts in the world, right? This sort of division was not there. There was a chain of being from our innermost depth to the highest... Uh, celestial, you know, uh, heaven. Uh, it was one big spectrum of doing and of being and of movement and of objective truth. And more than that, we did not have a fixed and very uh, coalesced self like we have today. So different things in the world, different entities in the world did things in us Right, and we can give a very easy example of how ancient people asked for, asked the gods for things like bravery, or creativity, or love. They couldn't do it by themselves, right? Like take the Odyssey or the Iliad. Uh, in the first sentence, in each one of them is a request from the goddess, the muse to give Homer, or whoever wrote it, creativity. He says, give me, give me song, muse, right? He can't produce it himself. It's not in him. We are not creative beings. We need something. We're not, we don't have this, this self that can produce creativity. Or, you know, warriors like Hercules or whatever ask the goddesses, Athena or gods, to give them bravery, because it, it's just not in them. And they need... So, so our inner world, our what we today perceive as an inner world, was a porous, to and fro, resonating existence with everything around us, certainly with gods, also demons, also devils that could get in us and tempt us and whatever. Yetzirah, like, yeah. And 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 we had to this we had to all the time balance this economy of different forces acting upon us, and for us the greatest um, the greatest uh, uh, insurance like for being able to to live a decent life was to hang on to the greatest power, which was God, right? Or 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 some some God. From the pantheon, or for the Jews, the the greatest God, which became the only God, etc. So, giving up on God was almost impossible at that time because God was your um, insurance. Your it's, it's not a good word, but I don't remember another. Yeah. 
was your safety net against all the other powers that went inside you and outside you all the time. I mean, you just were helpless. You know, take, you know, take the flu, right? We're talking about COVID. As you might know, the, the word flu comes from the word influenza, which comes, which is influence, right? Right. What influence? Mm. The influence of the stars. People caught the flu because they were influenced by the stars. It, so it's it's not a bad, it's not a, such a severe illness. It's just the stars, you know, going That's in. Interesting. A, yeah. Uh, even you're you're describing. By the way, even in Hebrew, Shapat, Hashpaat Akochavim. Oh wow! Shapat. Interesting. Learn oh, something. So, so uh, just just to, yeah, yeah. to to complete the thought, you were influenced by different forces all the time. The stars, demons angels, gods, goddesses, fairies, whatever. And if you weren't in a some sort of alliance, covenant, with some specific god which was strong enough, you would be totally blown away by different I, forces. You lost all these yeah. forces. I, I, think, I think it's really interesting. I'll say this and then I'm going to go full bizarre woohoo on, on everybody here. Before you do. Before I do? Yeah. Well, say what you want and then I'll... Uh, st- no, no, no. Then you say what you want because because no, then you're going to go full, full bizarre. Uh, Benny has a. It's great not bizarre. It's it's a thought experiment. I love your thought experiments. Um, they, they take us on trips. Um, it, it, what what you're? I love the way you described it um, because what that essentially is, and maybe this is just how I'm internalizing it, is a distinction we can we can call it between pre modern man or pre-modern mm-hmm. society and, and modern or postmodern society where you have, um, I mean, the first thing you said, and it captured it beautifully, is, is that distinction between the subjective and the objective. And, and we have this today in, in still on earth. Um, when you talk about, I think, people who are religious fundamentalists of any kind, I think they're still living a, a, in that world where it's a spectrum, where you're part of this, mm. you know, uh, um, just soup where, where there's no distinction between real life um, and, and what fascinates me, and Benny, we had a few people on our show who didn't grow up this way and who chose to go into those mindsets. Um, we had a fascinating guest who grew up a secular Israeli and became a professor of Judaic studies who chose to adopt an ultra-Orthodox life. Um, and, um, you know, still to this day, I, th- I think this is something... I don't know, maybe it's the greatest clash that we don't always know how to articulate. So, so your explanation helps me certainly articulate it, is is how do you understand the difference between modern and pre-modern? Um, and, and, and that's that concept. And, and the very con, the, the idea that you can be a quote-unquote modern mindset and choose, or maybe not choose, but jump back into the pre-modern yeah. soup where reality and, and spirituality are just one existence is something that, that I think we also take for granted. I want to hear Benny's uh, um, route, but, but, but I, yeah, I just want to um, say about what you said. Yes, the difference between modern and pre-modern can be in one word summed up as interiority, but it needs a few more words because it, it means, first of all, having this distinction very clear between what we have inside and what is outside our subjective and objective and second of all giving our subjective 
life, our inner worlds, uh, uh, an importance and a authority that was never before. Like pre-modern people never gave their reason or conscience or emotions or creativity as much authority and significance as we give today. Because it, it wasn't theirs, so to yeah, speak. It, it was less theirs. Right. Right? And, and, they, and, and even when they thought something from inside them, like, says something, wants something, they, they still were very much devout religious, and they thought, well, whatever, what, doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what God wants, what tradition wants, what the religious authority wants. So this whole turn, first of all, to a very clear cut between subjective and objective, and then giving precedence to the subjective over the objective. In the, like in saying what is important in life, what is good and bad, etc. Interesting. My 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 crazy out there thing. It actually isn't that crazy and that out there and that it's we'll it's, be the judges of that. It's it's actually being discussed by a lot of uh, very serious people, both in the scientific community and in and in the uh called the maybe even the philosophical community. Uh, is is the concept of the the potential of terraforming? Uh, terraform, you know what terraforming is. So coming to a new planet, and right? Okay. So if we were to colonize another planet, for example, um, you know, people want to get to Mars, and and hopefully one day there, you know, certain people, Elon Musk, for example, if he had his way, we would terraform form Mars. SpaceX exists to get us off this planet because we're destined in in, in his mind to be a multiplanetary species and whatnot. Um, the the concept then becomes. If you were to, and this is the thought experiment, and it's you know what's the ethics of, of terraforming and what what it could do to the people that then move to that planet over time, uh, if there's a disconnect with this one. Um, so in, in the thought experiment, it's, it says, you know, imagine that there's a technology for thousands of years in the future, and we're able to leave this planet to travel, you know, thousands of light years somehow to another area of the universe and terraform another planet, and on the way there, you will have, uh, you know. The people that will have been born in this planet and understand this planet, then land on the next planet. Maybe the person who's in charge there is was a military commander that was on on the spacecraft. They land, uh, they're on the new planet, uh, and and there's no contact with the societies of Earth. So this mm-hmm. military commander, this, he's basically the sovereign of this planet. He has to right. tell people how to how to live, even though they may have come from a democratic uh, country where the when the mission originated, they're now in this new place. Uh, and he has to tell people, you know, how it's going to be, and they and they terraform the or planet, she. or she, uh, and um, or they. that person's lifetime uh, expires, and uh, you know, there's there's now memory of this person existing. People that knew him are still alive, but they're no longer, uh, you know, he's no longer there. And then those people pass on, and and after a series of you know generations no one remembers this person even existed anymore and they don't know his name they know he existed there's a concept there was a a community of people who came here and settled it and terraformed it and gave us life and sustained us and created the institutions or whatnot and now you you know take that to its to its end point then you're you're thousands of years now in the future on this planet nobody remembers in the fact that there even was an earth because all connections been severed there's nothing there anymore no one remembers that people came to the planet and terraformed the planet mm-hmm. it's just this concept of this origin and somewhere in the past and that perhaps that would be these people's origin story and they would consider whatever class of something that came and created life on that planet to be their god and, and therefore you have a thought experiment where you've brought uh, a, a you know living 
human being to a planet, and, and you've you know seen that evolve over several thousands of years, and, and and now this person is a god, and it makes you consider, you know, what's the origin of life on this planet, and 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 is that a possibility, and and how you know is is that legitimate yeah. philosophy? I, I mean, I mean, basically, what you did here is give an answer to the question: What is religion, or why do pe- why do entities believe in God? And you gave an, and and at the end of what you said. You you also hinted to 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 answers people gave to what is earthly religion, which is at some point in the past aliens came, did some stuff. Maybe they gave us some technology or l- taught us how to use fire or whatever, and then left. And the remnant of the memory of these encounters became different religious traditions on earth, right? And Erich von Daniken wrote his Chariots of the Gods. You don't remember, you don't know. <laughs> it was a huge hit, I think, in the 70s. He wrote that we know from uh, encryptions on the pyramids or wherever that actually, or Easter Island statues, that actually aliens came and they were indeed or 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 the revelation on mount sinai what is that well this is actually an alien ship coming down on the summit of a mountain and you know oh, there's there serious people who believe this i would were, believe it easily they were because given given it was a huge hit but, but see hold on because you said there's serious people that believe you're a serious person you believe in the i'm not that serious no but let's be let's be legit for a second i'm i'm sitting in this room with two very serious people credentialed people you're, you you have a PhD. You were were in the JPPI. Like you, to many people, they would say you're a very serious person. Yet you believe in this one God who's an omnipotent force in the universe, who's created and given and sustained life and everything. And you've never seen him. You've never met him, but it's there, and you know it's there. And you and you and you and you worship this being, and you're you know three times a day, and he tells you how to eat, and he tells you how to you know have relations with your family and with your wife, and and, and you accept that. Why is that any different? Practically speaking, from somebody who would say, "I choose to believe that an intelligent life came to this planet." It's not choose. It, it, it's it's a materialistic answer to the question that he answers in a different way, in a traditional way, or in a spiritual way. This is a materialistic explanation for religion. Why are there religions? Well, it's all very simple. You know, there are other beings on other planets, which is totally rational, right? They came here. They wanted to progress our society or civilization and so they you know gave us some technology whatever so so it's i i think it's a reasonable explanation if you want a materialistic explanation for religion personally i have another explanation (laughs) what's yours i think there is an actual divine or transcendent or absolute or however you want to call it oneness or existence or havaya or something there is actually something else than just this material storage space of three-dimensional objects right there, there is and and i think we can we can tap into that we can experience mm-hmm. we can see the world as that or also as that sorry and and i would say this very simple but very deep and profound existence and an experience of the world is one of the reasons for the origination of different religious systems. I connect more to that. <laughs> I didn't mean 
what you said isn't serious because if if you know if we're playing thought experiments, sure, it could be perfectly reasonable. Um, what I meant is, is there any people who are considered serious who have proof, who have reason to believe this other than being a thought experiment? That's what I meant by that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to connect more to what you just said, Tomer. Um, but, but but so but, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So th- you have this Erich von Däniken guy, who gave you proof. I mean, you know, if you accept it, he says, you know, look at this inscription from a pyramid or from uh, a- another ancient temple. This looks like a spacecraft, and this looks like an astronaut. Uh, he got some Maya inscriptions, or like right? the Nazca lines in Peru, and yeah. And, and, and you say, well, you know, and I mean, he 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 had a nice case. I'm not saying I I don't think it's true. It's right, mm-hmm. but. But he, he really made a nice case for it. And then you have another line of these sort of speculations. You have Fyotr Capra with the Tau of Physics saying, you know, actually, quantum physics now tells us what religion has told us all along, which is that consciousness is everything and everything, uh, you know, everything is conscience and everything is alive and you know, the fact that uh, you, you can Schrodinger's cat and whatever means that really consciousness defines reality. So we are all, in a way, this great conscious being, God, or whatever. You know, there are different ways of explaining religious phenomena through either archaeology and history or quantum physics and science. And, and, and these are very popular ex- explanations. Is there a danger for trying to um prove your world your your worldview but your your spiritual view of the universe for example somebody might believe let's say that there are aliens and the aliens created the world and then they search out to to look for that proof all yeah. the while discounting everything else that they might see or 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 the converse of that that there's somebody who believes that the torah is the word of god so they they conduct archaeological yeah. research with that in mind, and, and that you know, well, you're, changes you know, the context. You're just talking about dogmatism, any right. sort of dogmatic worldview where you don't, are not open to explanations that don't align with what you already think, is danger. It's dangerous in the way that you can you can miss out on the truth. Then definitely, I mean, yeah. do do we do we find ourselves now as we're entering a, a you know very much. Uh, Let's call it a, a polarized and 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 increasingly uh, dogmatic in yeah. its in its secular hierarchy or orthodoxy um, societies in the West. Do we find ourselves now entering into a more dangerous epoch of our of our cultural evolution? I think we're in a very dangerous point in time. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's depressing, really. I mean, you, you can see what... I mean, for me, this era, this time, this COVID crisis is depressing in a very deep way, not only because it's uncomfortable and people are dying and, you know, my children didn't have school for a year and all these hardships... But seeing intelligent, good human beings simply get carried away with conspiracy theories and anti-vaccination idiocy, and it's like it's, and I'm talking about this is 
this is also people in my family close right. people to me that it's just un you cannot talk to them anymore it's just people there is no mutual ground they're lost for factual argument for rational it's like, argument. It's like they're living literally in a different world and a different and, logical construct yeah. a different factual construct and, and different authorities for yeah, yeah. For defining or, or discerning facts from fiction you just you you, you, you you tell them this look this is statistics look at this say no 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 this you can't be trusted this yeah. can't be trusted they're fudged right. and, so and, they're, and, and they're manipulated and but this is so depressing because again we're not talking about weirdos we're talking about my family <laughs> In sure, sure. And, I, I know, and, 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 I know people you know. I know, I know people. Good like people, too, good sure. people that you just can't talk to them. This is so depressing for me because, and and really for me, it it lays, um, um, uh, it 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 punctures, uh, or it, it 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 undermines. Yeah, that's the word. It undermines the whole humanistic project, the whole enlightenment project, which says that if you just give people good education and <laughs> enough information. They will be able They'll reach to reach good decisions on their own. Yeah, yeah, and, and this this is. Well, I maybe, mean, there, this uh, is maybe you just said it. if you give them enough education, maybe there's a problem with education. Mm. So, no, I know what you mean. It's it's no, very it's difficult to explain. These are educated, smart people. Ways. Sometimes you know, sometimes other, they're, other they're than too to, smart. Other right, than to say that, I think, and this is me. This is me personally. What I'm saying. I think that sometime in the past, you know, four to eight years, our politics in the world were broken in many ways, and I think that it was so large that it fractured what people understand is what is truth and reality. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that our atmosphere of, of social media, being able to yeah. exist in your own silo of information where you have a feedback loop yeah. and hierarchies of feedback Absolutely. that are built up of you only yeah. have to engage with things that you believe and you let the what you want to believe dictate what you believe are factual. And, you know, it, yeah. it, and, and this is real now. It's, and you it's, don't have to encounter any... Any counterpoint, right? Because the right. algorithms feeding yeah. you the things that they think you like, because you have an ecosystem of of your own, you know, um, of fantasy. Your own yeah, of yeah. your own making. That's it. Maybe in the end, the only people that will have real rational thought are the Haredim that don't have access to the internet. You know, Go full they, circle. You know, um, though they do now. So uh, first of all, they do. Yeah, but no, our our. The same gentleman that, that I mentioned who was a guest on the show, Guy Madelon. It was a, uh, shout very, out to Guy. Shout out to Guy. Very interesting episode um, and a fascinating story of a guy who was highly, highly educated and chose to become Haredi. And um, he actually mentioned, I don't know if it was on the air or off the air, but it, it might be, you know, uh, we, we're talking about in the Haredi world um, how most of them are not anti-vax um, and and maybe he's like it's because maybe it's because we don't have too much scientific education. So okay, just listen to the government. You know, like th- there's kind of a sweet spot of yeah, you do have some scientific education, but not enough to actually understand the science, so that you question the science without really knowing how to question the science. No, but you know, it's not even understanding the science. It's really it's really a, a access to the internet and and to all sorts of pages which seem scientific, right? But obviously, are you know, are filled with disinformation, or, or and sometimes just outright conspiracy theories. Sure. Well, it's like that guy that was in in the paper yesterday, that the uh, prominent anti-vax activist, oh, yeah. uh, Yechai, uh, I forget his Chai last name. Shuliani, Shuli- Shulian, or no, something. No, yeah, Shamul, Shamul, Shamul. I I don't remember. I don't want to. 
I don't want. To. Yeah, look, I'm very sorry he passed yeah. away. Yeah, he passed uh, away. And, and, and it's terrible of COVID. Yeah. But to the very end, he, he he said it's it's a hoax. I've been poisoned by the police. This guy on his deathbed said, "Continue fighting. Don't get vaccinated. It's all a hoax." And this guy is not breathing because his lungs are filled with water from COVID or whatever. And he's dying. And he's and he died. It's just it boggles the mind. And his 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 followers are saying, "Yeah, he was poisoned. He's poisoned by the police because he too many protests." Benny likes to go into these these very dark dark holes um why would you think that why would i think that? what evidence have i given you to believe that i might take us into a dark Um, place no but i i like to think how do how do we get out of these holes um what what is the next phase where do we go in society um how does maybe yeah i I don't know where do we go from here because you could say okay one trajectory is we keep getting more and more divided uh, more and more polarized, more and more people who reject all, you know, traditional authority and government and science, etc. W- what's the alternative of that? What's the positive alternative of that? How do, and how do we help that along? Um, I think the only maybe this is your next book. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I actually don't think so. I think the only um, option is for both sides of the political divide to be extremely responsible and and you know stick to truth do, don't exaggerate don't use hip, like you know don't use hyperbole hyperbole or or just hysteria as a political tool and work together as a a, a serving elite because they are to you know lower the flames Get some consensus. Still be divided. Still be divided over political questions. But but you know, have this division within a, a an agreed upon framework of logic, yeah. rash reason, right? That requires responsible adult leadership. Yeah, and we don't have it. Yeah, yeah no, I'm I'm actually, I'm 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 really depressed and a bit pessimistic because because it, I mean I'm, there are stupid ideas on both sides of the political spectrum, but. But at least one side is not only handing out stupid ideas, but being on, I mean, doing it in bad faith. It's like these people don't even believe what they are saying. The leadership doesn't believe. Yeah, the leadership. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's know. a tool. It's, it's cynical. Um, it's cynical. And if one side doesn't play the game by the rules, I don't think the game can be played. Mm. Do you think Israel is in a different place in regards to this than the United States? I think it's in a different place because, I mean, there, I mean, the United States has only two political parties, and one of them is at the moment led by people who are in bad faith, who are, who are not playing the game fairly. And Israel has a few political parties, and most of them are still, you know, within the bounds of, Let's talk seriously yeah. about it. we disagree, but and and so it's not the same place. Though you know, it's it's Israel is not in a good place. Well, yeah, I mean, we we have we've had this conversation many times, and and you always say like, well, you know, too many parties, uh, the instability. Let's learn from the American system. Um, but but this is actually one of uh, one of those things where, despite the chaos here, I I prefer 
many things about our system because of that. Because yeah. I feel like, yes, we do have certain elements, and, I, and I'm not getting into which party. Um, no, no, we, we stay apolitical on this show. We, we do have certain elements who I think have used this cynically. Um, I think we have more elements who use this not cynically, who believe what they're saying. Um, but in general, the multi-party system, the need for coalitions, the ultimately the need for compromise forces mm-hmm. us to actually, at the end of the day, sit at the same table, which is why you can have a Naftali Bennett sitting in the same yeah. government as Meretz and Ram, um, yeah. which which you can't imagine in, in an American context. You know, yeah. um, you, you can't imagine AOC saying, okay, you know what, Ted Cruz, let's form a government, you and me, and, um, you know, we'll bring a couple, mm-hmm. you know. Yet they did pass the largest bipartisan infrastructure bill of all time. Which they all agreed upon. Is that uh, my buddy Mayor Pete, the new uh, transportation minister? No, it was, it was he, Biden's uh, infrastructure bill. Okay. Uh, $3.5 trillion. No, I, I think the American system has a lot to go for it, right? It's, it, it worked for more than 200 years. It's impressive, sure. right? Um, but yeah, but right now uh, it's in danger because, because half of it is not playing the game. Right. right. It, it, it's creating a new game, right? Mm-hmm. Any polit- a political system can only be as effective as the people who, who buy yeah. into it are yeah. human at beings that are using it. At the end, yeah. you know, uh, de Tocqueville has a great uh, point in his uh, uh, Democracy in America, uh, which he says, uh, and he's talking, he's writing in the, 30, in the 1830s, and he says, you know, the, the Mexicans copied the U.S. Constitution word for word. And I don't know if that's true, but that's what he writes. Probably they were influenced by sure. it anyway. But it's not going to work in Mexico. Why? Because it's the people actually don't believe in that ethos. There are different people in a different culture. It works in the United States because people are on board like and, and it speaks to them. And the Tocqueville says it's not enough to write a constitution. You have to actually believe. Well, it. well this is why, you know, nation building, uh, what, certainly yeah. when America's tried to nation build yeah. in Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. just now, it hasn't succeeded. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have many, many conversations with friends from around the, the Middle East, especially the Arab Gulf. The ones in the Arab Gulf flat out say, we don't want democracy that's not meant for our society, at least not now. You know, um, so, so that that's that's an interesting concept. What are you working on these days? What are what are your where are your interests taking I'm, you? Your research focus? I'm working on finding a job. <laughs> uh, no, so I'm in the Hartman Institute, but that's only like sort of half. Sure, I need to find something else. I, I mean, again, we, we we came back to Israel two months ago, right? So so we're still getting it together. Um, but and so I'll I'll know what I'll be working on the minute I'm actually working. <laughs> I, I'm I'm thinking about writing something about liberalism, the the crisis of liberalism, something like that. Maybe can people find your your books in English? No, and and that really saddens me. I simply don't have the funds right now to get them translated. I don't have tenure in any university, so I can't get the university. To right. If there is any philanthropical, if anyone's listening. That want, wants want to invest some twenty thousand dollars in translating either of my books, I would be <laughs> grateful. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, but but I do hope someday they will be translated. Certainly. Look, this is you deal with such important topics and in such important interests, and a lot of them are very or, or they're perceived to be very very um, difficult to access or difficult to comprehend or difficult to reach. I, I can talk about, you know, in my family, I have many people that I know where it's like, if you talk about philosophy, it's like, mm, you know, it, it, it's, it, and, 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 and I'm not that way, but 
I know that for a great many people, it's difficult sometimes to approach, um, you know, to, to wrap up, are there any, how do, how do you recommend that people get into, you know, understanding or better comprehending philosophy? Uh, and are there any, you know, great books that you would recommend that people read um, or, or any who, who should thinkers, people be following? People yeah. should try to deepen, you know. In philosophy? Well, I'm not a philosophy professor. I understand. Um, but, but you're very literate in the... Uh, for spirituality, I would say read Alan Watts, A-L-A-N-W-A-T-T-S. He is too. a British philosopher, spiritual teacher who came to the United States in the, in the 60s or 50s even, and he is brilliant and very articulate. And I would read his book on Zen, Buddhism, and other books. For understanding modern Judaism... I would read in English uh, Leora Batnitsky's How Judaism Became a Religion. It's a bit academic, but it's a wonderful introduction to the maybe the most important event in modern Jewish history, which was not the Holocaust nor the founding of the State of Israel, but emancipation, Jews getting rights in different European countries. And that changed Judaism completely. Yes. To understand the modern world, I would read anything about that by Charles Taylor. Again, I'm very much influenced by Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher. So he has a, an amazing, huge book called Sources of the Self, which explains modern selfhood. He has a, a very, again, a big book called A Secular Age, which, which it talks about secularization, how we live in a secular world. And, and, and if you want a short book, but very, very succinct and brilliant, I would um, please read, uh, it's either called The Ethics of Authenticity or Sources of the Self. And in Hebrew, it was translated as Muakata Modernut. Uh, it's, a, it's a short and brilliant book. By? Charles Taylor. Ah. I, I have to admit, and, and it's completely stupid, but I have a hard time taking thinkers or, or writers or whatever seriously when they have kind of generic english sounding <laughs> names <laughs> like i need like a good like german name you know, like charles Tal- i need a good french name tocqueville maybe like an old greek name hey, and charles know? taylor was even a, an african i was gonna dictator. say charles taylor is like an charles awful right, that's right that's right liberia that's right yeah but no, different Charles Taylor. No, different. I understand what you're saying. You don't, you it's, know, like, it's, like, the, it's like the economist Adam Smith. Adam Smith, really? <laughs> really? Like, give me give me a serious name. Like a, a name that stands out of the crowd. Um, like Nietzsche. Nietzsche is good. Yeah. Kant. Kant yeah. is good. You know, um, you know th- those are solid names. What do you read or watch for fun these days? I, I actually, I'm, I usually don't read novels, but I'm reading now um, Ariel Horowitz's new Hebrew novel, uh, Tovei Banenu, Our Finest, about a, a national religious family in Israel, three generations, and it's, it's both entertaining and, and uh, you know, observant of, of that public. Um, I, 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 what fantastic series, t- TV series did I see? Ah, I saw Loki which I enjoyed. Oh, in, in, but in how did Disney? you access it? Do you, you get the Disney Channel? Yeah, I am uh, a VPN. Yeah. <laughs> Is it illegal to say? No, no, no. It's just joking. I, I, wish yeah. they spa- I, I wish a VPN would sponsor the show. It was a thought experiment. <laughs> and, uh, and now I'm watching um, 
how's it called? A resident alien. In, uh, um, I actually bought it from Amazon, so it's perfectly legal. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fantastic series about this alien uh, pretending to be a doctor in a small Colorado town. That sounds fun. It's, it's great. It's done great. That sounds, that sounds fun. Like I would like yeah. And for me, it's also, you know, coming back to some Americana because I actually miss life in America quite, uh, quite significantly. I really enjoyed my years in Berkeley. Huh, fantastic. I just I just binge watched Shit's Creek all six seasons. <laughs> Did you see it? I, I you know, I, I saw the first episode and I said, ah, but people tell me that it gets better. It, it gets better because they get away from the ridiculousness and um, uh-huh. they do such a nice job of character development oh, okay. and, and introducing growth oh. and kind of a moral arc to the whole story. And it's it's actually very touching. But I you said character development, and I have to recommend uh, Bojack Horseman. I've, I've, I've seen, seen that. that. Which Great. I think is a masterpiece. It's an amazing series about, about the, the, the fundamental question of whether people can change. Huh. It attacks this question from every angle, and it's super witty and funny. And okay. it's just, I mean, I, it's, uh, I, I've seen it. I'll check it out. I've, I've been an Archer fan all these years. I don't know if you've seen. Oh, oh my God. It's one of the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as deep. Right. It's, it's not deep, it's but it's so. It, it's yeah. got so many levels of, of cultural oh references. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Good times. Incredible. Incredible. Well, this has been fun. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's not, it didn't go in a lot of ways where I expected it to go. And I think I enjoyed it uh, very much and even more. Uh, I'm glad we finally did this. I'm glad we did it in person. Thank you. Thank you. I had had a great time. Thank you. Amazing. Um, I I should also mention, um, you put a lot of very, uh, I think maybe I said at the beginning, you put a lot of very deep, intuitive, uh, observant posts on your Facebook page. Facebook, Twitter. Um, so recommend people to follow you if you know Hebrew, certainly, but also the the translate function does a decent enough job to get a gist of your observations, you have a Thank blog. You. Are you still? Do you still have your blog uh, post? I, I do. I even have an English blog, which I post things to once in a while. Uh, so yes, a Hebrew blog and an English how, blog. How can people find it? Uh, well, what? in in Hebrew, it's uh, called Lulaat Ha'el, uh, the noose of God. Uh, and then in English, it's Tomer Persico English blog. I don't know. You'll get there. <laughs> something totally different. We will, we will uh, put that in the show notes if Definitely. people want to follow. And of course, your two books, uh, yeah. which are currently only in Hebrew. And if yeah. anybody wants to fund the translation of either of them to English, please. Uh, and we will put the links uh, to those also on the show notes. Thank you. Uh, we wish you a Gemar uh, Hatimatova. Indeed. If you're a Indeed. faster, then a, uh, have a good fast. Um, Benny, uh, to all our listeners out there, um, whether you're Jewish or not, may you have yes. a may you and a all be inscribed in the good life. May everyone have a good year. I think that we can, as, yeah. as humans, we can all agree on that. Um, and it's good to be back doing Jewanst and certainly doing Jewanst in person. In person. Uh, thank right. you. Take thank care, you. everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.